Hey, what's going on? It's Ryan Woods. This is in the Woods podcast, and I have a special one for you. They said I couldn't get a guest. They said I couldn't get a guest, and I have Bobby Chacon, and you're like, who is that, Ryan? That's an FBI agent. Yes, I have an FBI agent on the podcast this week, uh, Bobby Chacon, retired FBI agent slash attorney. He's a writer and consultant on Criminal Minds, staff writer on HBO Max crime series, and has done many uh, interesting things, much more interesting than me, just losing more and more bets in my basement. As I have an under on a hockey game, and and these guys, they just I have six, and they have six right now, and there's a whole 25 minutes to play, so you know what I say? Hey, fellas. <laughs> fellas. You've done enough. You got enough goals to win. Let's, let's wrap this up. All right? Hey, let's wrap that up. We don't need to be scoring any more goals. <laughs> okay, we're all good. I don't know why I bet under. Sorry, I'm a bad gambler. And if there's anything that this guy should have arrested me for, is being a bad gambler. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Uh, it'll be an interesting, it's an interesting conversation with Bobby Chacon, FBI. We talk mafia. We talk um, what it's like being in the FBI, uh, being a dive team, being an investigator, going and do the Idaho murders and things like that. So we talk a lot about, a lot of interesting things, what it's like to almost kill somebody, you know, whatever, whatever FBI agents almost do. So we're talking mob in the 80s in New York. We're talking murder. We're talking drugs. We're talking Jamaican mob. Just stuff you don't get anywhere else. Where are you getting, where are you getting Jamaican mafia talk on other podcasts? Nobody talking about this. So that's what I'm giving you this week. Jamaican mafia talk, New York mob, all of it. So enjoy. Um... Maybe you'll get another special episode from me later in the week. Who knows? Who knows what I'm up to these days? Losing a lot of money gambling. That's what I'm up to. All right. Enjoy. So welcome to the End of the Woods podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Woods. I'm here with F- former FBI agent, retired FBI agent, uh, Bobby Chacon. Uh, we're going to talk all things FBI, career, everything, everything he's got. <laughs> I, I want to know about the FBI. and I'm sure he's got interesting stories. He just told me he rescued a dog from Russia. So we'll probably get into that at some point. Uh, Bobby, if you could, how are you? And Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I um, quick. Uh, uh, in a nutshell, life. I was born and raised in New York. My dad was an NYPD sergeant detective. My brother eventually became an NYPD de- detective sergeant. I was destined for, you know, a law enforcement career, I think, uh, growing up on Long Island in New York. And uh, I went to college down south in Atlanta and then Tampa. And then I went back up to New York for law school. And it was while I was in law school, uh, they had one of those recruiting days where, you know, all these companies came around and the FBI was one of them. I don't know if that people realize the FBI recruits heavily yeah. uh, of lawyers and accountants. And uh, so, you know, I had already taken the NYPD test and was um, interested in a career in the in the NYPD, like my dad and brother, uh, even as a lawyer. Uh, but uh, had a long talk with my dad. And he he actually talked me into going with the feds. And um, two weeks after law school, um, 1987, I, uh, I joined the FBI. I was down at Quantico in uh, in the fall of 87. I was reported to duty in the New York office uh, just before Christmas of 1987. Wow. So a whole your whole family in law enforcement. I was going to ask you how you got your start in law enforcement and you, you nailed it. Uh, was that something that you would plan? Like in high school, you're going to high school. We all try to figure out what we're doing. Was that like planned out for you? 
Pretty much. I mean, you know, like law enforcement is one of those legacy occupations. I think nursing is the same because my mom was a nurse and my sister became a nurse. Uh, my sister-in-law is a nurse. My brother married yeah. a nurse. Um, so there are certain occupations that seem to draw in like legacies like that, that like that. And I think law enforcement is one of them. And so I grew up the son of a cop. We would I did go to cop picnics and cop parties and, and stuff. And it just became a lifestyle to me. And, uh, you know, the people were great and stuff. And, and my dad always, you know, was uh, a guy that looked for the future. He said, get, get, get a career that's going to provide you benefits. You know, even if the salary is not as great uh, in the long term, if you sure. You know, after 20 years, if you qualify for a pension, you know, and he's talking to a 19-year-old kid at this point, he said, believe me, when you're in your 40s and you can retire with a pension, you know, which is yeah. basically a salary in healthcare for the rest of your life, at 40 or 45 years old, you're going to see how valuable that is. Yeah, yeah. And and sure enough, it, it is. And and so, um, you know, my brother retired at 42, I think, 43, and never worked again in his life. He's 64 now, in the best shape of his life, goes to the gym every day, uh, has three kids. They're all out of the house now. And, you know, he, he, he had a 20-year career. So a little over 20 years, retired after 9-11 in New York City and uh, moved to Florida. And uh, like I said, has had, you know, an entire life because, you know, his wife is a nurse, but, uh, you know, he's got a pension and health care and, and stuff. And so my dad always told us to kind of look out for that and look yeah. out for careers that provide you with that security uh, and safety net for your family and stuff. And so that was a, civil, a career in civil service. Yeah. Always, always kind of was there for us. I mean, I, we were for, certainly free to do anything I want. I went to engineering school uh, and then went to law school and got some offers from law firms. And I had friends certainly that, you know, made a lot more money than me over the course of their careers. But, you know, in New York City, occasionally as I was, you know, kicking in drug dealer doors and locking up mafia kingpins, uh, you know, I'd have dinner occasionally with friends of mine that yeah. were young attorneys in Manhattan law firms who were working 18 hours a day, you know, not making the big money yet, you know, eventually they became partners in their firms and made the big money. Um, but certainly they had, I had the career that they were envious of um, telling them stories of, you know, international travel and tracking down fugitives internationally and working in all these different things that they would see on the news at night. And I was doing them during the day. And so, you know, it was never about money for me, a career. Um, and it still isn't, by the way, my second career. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so so uh, the FBI provided me with with the perfect opportunity to to do good work and to have fun at it. Did you now you hit on something there, the mafia, because I've been watching so many YouTube uh, mm -hmm. documentaries and you're from obviously New York. So this mm -hmm. works out perfectly. Did you have any run ins with any of the I mean, can you tell us any mob story sure. or mafia story? Yeah, please. My first squad assignment in New York City was on squad C-17, which is just a designation, um, but it was the Lucchese crime family. So in New York City, unlike most of the cities in New York City, there are five mafia families that rule, right? Every other city has just one family because you're in charge. Um, you know, whether it's Santo Traficante in Tampa or Carlos Marcello in New Orleans. Uh, or and they call Scarpers. that the uh, they call that the commission in New York, right? In New York, there. because there's five families, they had yeah. to rule by commission. There's yeah. no one family ruled, right? So you had to have a commission, which was the bosses of each of the five families. Um, uh, Colombo, Lucchese, Gambino, Genovese, and who am I missing? Banano. Yeah. Um, and so those are the five ruling families. And so I, I eat the FBI had one whole squad dedicated just to each five of the five families. Um, and these were task forces. So, you know, we, so my desk was right next to an NYPD detective. Tommy Lindbergh was my partner on that squad and he was an NYPD detective. So my whole career, you know, so we leveraged the, uh, you know, the talents and abilities and resources of the NYPD and the FBI married together. Um, and that was most effective. 
And so I was on the Lucchese crime family. It was the, our office. So the FBI has an office in Manhattan, in New York City, and an office out in Queens, uh, which is a, a borough, a neighboring borough. And so the two families, the Lucchese's and the Gambinos, were stationed out in in the Queens office because that's where the families mostly lived and operated. Sure. Again, the, the, the Bananos uh, and the Columbos and the Genovese were in Manhattan because they were mainly there. Um, and so we were right next to the Gambino family, which is people know is the John Gotti squad, right? That Correct. was the Gotti squad. And that was at the time they were chasing Gotti. Gotti was still around in the 80s and the 87 when I got there through 88, 89, 90. Um, well, he, so had just, that, he had just killed, um, didn't uh, the Paul, Big Paulie. Castellano. Uh, Castellano. Didn't he die in like 86? He was 86 at Spark 86. Steakhouse. Yeah. Yeah. That was the, the hit. Um, yeah. Yes. So um, that was you the famous got, one where uh, yeah. Howard Stern called Howard Stern on his radio show called Spark Steakhouse the next day and made re- and wanted reservations for two seat for dinner for two in the no shooting section. Yeah. Um, that was the thing that got him in a little yeah. hot water. <laughs> yeah, <it did. laughs> so yeah, so yeah. So Gotti took over the family after rubbing out uh, Paul Castellano, Big Paul. Um, and uh, so yeah, so I use I knew those guys all very well because we you know we sat right next to each other. They had Gam- and the Gambinos and the and Lucchese had a lot of interplay with stuff. So the the Lucchese's what their their main racket was Kennedy Airport. So they controlled all the cargo moving in and out of Kennedy Airport. And they oh, did wow. that through through their control of two Teamster locals. So uh, local two two ninety five and seven fifty I think. Um, so Harry and Mark Davidoff, two uh, Jewish guys, a Jewish guy and his son. Harry was the dad, Mark was the son. They were the respective presidents of those teams to locals. Really, they were installed by the mafia to bookkeep the uh, the, 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 the the union's books. Um, and that's how they controlled um, the activity. They would extort the trucking companies at Kennedy Airport. Um, for Kennedy Airport, for those people who don't know, is, it's one of the busiest, not passenger airports. You know, we know Atlanta and Chicago sure. are the big passenger airports. But Kennedy was always a big... Um, a big cargo airport um, because the Port of Elizabeth was somewhat further away. Unlike here in Los Angeles, where you have like the big port of LA Long Beach complex, it's actually two massive um, uh, ports next to each other, like adjacent to each other. You, don't, you really don't know where one ends and one begins if you look at it. Um, but that's the biggest port in the in the country. And it's right in Los Angeles proper. Yeah. New York doesn't have that big kind of port. There's a little port in Brooklyn, Port Elizabeth over in Jersey. So a lot of cargo came in and out of Kennedy Airport. Um, you know, huge, huge 747 cargo planes would come in, you know, loads of stuff that you'd get off a ship or super freighters now, you know, back in the day would come in in by plane. So there was a very lucrative uh, market to be had in hijacking those trucks with all that merchandise or extorting the trucking companies to allow their trucks to come and go off the airport uh, without getting hijacked or without getting damaged and things like that. So uh, the Lucchese family was big into the rackets at Kennedy Airport. So I actually was assigned to a a big case called Kenrack, which stood for Kennedy Racketeering. Um, it's where the Lufthansa, the famous, now famous Lufthansa, which was a Lucchese family yes. job, uh, a Lufthansa, the cash heist at the time, the biggest cash heist in U.S. history. Um, it's been surpassed since then. But um, uh, that was a Lucchese family job at Kennedy Airport through the Lufthansa cargo terminal because yeah. it was a bunch of money coming back from Germany uh, where soldiers would kind of like exchange local currency or military yeah. pay for for that and stuff. So that was, you know, that was, of course, 
a little bit before my time. Uh, that was in the late 70s. But certainly that was the type of thing the Lucchese's were involved in. And you saw that portrayed in, in the movie Goodfellas. Um, yeah. And they they kind of used that because the timeline is wrong in that movie, right? Because <laughs> Henry, Henry Hill came after him and 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 Jimmy the Gent Burke, who was in charge of that, that job, was a few years earlier and stuff. But they wanted to portray it in that because that's supposedly Paul Vario, who sure. in the movie is played by... Um, uh, Paul, um, the actor, oh my God, I should know his name. I worked with him. Paul um, Sovino. Paul Sovino sure. played the boss of the family of Henry's family. They called him um, Paul Ivario, I think, in the movie, which was not his real name. They changed his name. He, he, that was supposed to be Little Vicar Musso um, in real life. He, yeah. he was Little Vicar Musso. But yeah, so I worked the Lucchese family and you know, I knew all those guys. The first thing I, when I walked into that squad, there's always a big board with the basically organizational structure. Here's the boss. Here's the underboss. Oh, really? Here's the, here's the consigliere. Here's the underboss. Here's the capos. Yeah, here's yeah. The soldiers for each capo has these soldiers to them. And here's the associates down below. And yeah, so you have to learn that family. It's like learning the playbook. Yeah. For a football player. It's like, you know, you get in and you said, okay, there's the board. You know, next week you got to memorize. By next week you got to memorize it. And you got to be, you know, you'll be quizzed on it and stuff. And you got to know about well, how all the family works together. Whose uncle is, whose cousin is, you know, a lad who's married to sure. who, and yeah, and so who doesn't get along with who, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and and that was part of my job the first three years, four years, five years in the FBI. Was there a is there a level of paranoia working on like a mafia like on a mafia case like you were assigned? Is there a level of paranoia for that? Like, do you ever worry about your safety really or was that just kind of is that like something i'm making up in my head i'd be paranoid no it's honestly. an interesting question actually and i laugh because my father-in-law just texted me about it today because yesterday i i um i taped a, uh, an episode of the dr phil show which is going to be our next wednesday um and so i i am i'm in the media a lot now and so yeah. and there's actually two there's two tv shows being pitched with me as as kind of a co-host uh one is about the fbi dive team which i'll mention to you later and one is about the mafia and my father-in-law uh, he asked me the same question via text this morning he said like uh are these guys going to come back and get you like and, and you know first of all number one the mafia has that kind of code you know they don't go back at law enforcement sure um uh, and in fact in 1988 uh, when i was fairly new i was a rookie still in the fbi we had a murder of a dea agent who was undercover um working against uh oh god i should know i think it was a i think it was a gambino guy um, anyway, Everett Hatcher was a African-American DEA agent undercover setting up a drug deal with this, this associate of, a, of an organized crime, a mafia family. I'm pretty sure I, I should know this and I, and I apologize for not knowing you. Exactly. That's all right. I, I want to say it was he was a Gambino guy uh, or an associate. Uh, and anyway, uh, Gus Faraci was the guy and they made the, the deal and Gus killed Everett. He, it was a ripoff. He didn't know Everett was a cop uh, or a DEA agent and he shot him dead. And uh, for the next, you know, 12, 14 months, every mafia squad was taken off whatever they were doing and putting on this case. What we did was a, what we call a bumper lock operation, which meant all, all, um, we threw out all the rule books and uh, we literally went and sat in front of their houses and followed them everywhere, not covertly. I mean, we were yeah. in their back pockets. We were going to follow them everywhere. They weren't going to have a room to breathe. Now the mafia... You know, they have a lot of bookmaking, loan sharking, prostitution, a lot of stuff that's not like, you know, crime number one on anybody's list. Um, but they're crimes nonetheless. And they, sh you know, if you wanted to, it's a manpower intensive operation. That's why you can't do it, really. Yeah. But if you wanted to do it for a short period of time, you could shut down every single thing that they were doing. 
and every source of income that they have. And that's what we did. We said, look, you got to turn this guy over to us because he can't run without a network of help. Right. And we know somebody's out there helping him. So it was us against the family. And we, and I remember getting a ticket. Okay, here's this guy. I didn't know him because he wasn't in my family. And so go sit in front of his house everywhere he goes. Now he was very respectful. They knew, the family knew what was happening. They knew everybody was being followed. Every bookmaking operation was being shut down. Every prostitution house was being raided. And and so they were looking for Gus as well. And But they were looking to kill him oh. because they wanted to send a message. You know, you don't do this because you're hurting our bottom line. You're hurting our income streams. Um, and that's exactly what we... So there was kind of this race between law enforcement to arrest him and his own family to kill him. Now, there were rogue people inside his family giving him refuge. You know, sure. I, I, one time I remember a SWAT team raided a, a, a yacht in, in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, and they realized he was gone hours before he must have got tipped off or something. Um, so we knew we were on his trail and everywhere we did what sorry, my hat is all crooked. <laughs> um, I'm just noticing. So everywhere we kind of almost caught him a day or two later, somebody else would turn up dead because what happens is the family realized Oh, that yacht belongs to you know, Joey so-and-so. Joey so-and-so must be helping Gus. We killed Joey so-and-so. Yeah. So, so they wanted to put the, the word out that you can't, nobody should be helping this guy. But he still had people that were loyal to him. So, you know, they were people that were helping hide him. Um, I don't know. I want to say a year, 14 months, 18 months later, you know, down the block from his mom's house in, I think she said somewhere in Brooklyn, I think. He winds up dead. They find him dead in the street. He yeah. went back to visit his mom. And the mom must have known and somebody tipped them off where they were waiting for him to show up at his mom's house and they killed him. And when we saw him, boy, like the pictures that I had of him, we all had pictures in our cars of him, you know. And I mean, in that year or so, um, he gained so much weight, dyed his hair red, grew out a beard, dyed that red. He didn't look like the guy I had in my pictures, you know. Um, but anyway, so that mm -hmm. was the that was the. That was all the result of him killing a cop, basically killing a DEA agent. Because And the mob knows that. So the mob is always, that's a long way of telling you, like yeah. the mob has this code of, you know, you you know, there's a, there's kind of a professional respect there. And you don't kill us, we don't kill you kind of thing, you know, um, not that we would kill them anyway. But yeah. But, um, but yeah, so I don't worry about them. And that's one of the reasons. The other reason is I'm, you know, I'm, I'm armed. I still am armed. I have a, I have a. You know, as an FBI agent, I can carry my weapon concealed in all 50 states. I have that sure. right. I don't need a, a California concealed weapons permit or a New York concealed weapons carry. I can carry my gun. It's called HR 218. And I can carry my gun concealed sure. in all 50 states. And I do. And I travel with it and, you know, and and stuff. So, so I, I have the ability to take care of my family. I After I was working the Italian mob for a couple of years, I went over and I started working what we call the Jamaican posses, which are Jamaican drug cartels. And they are much more violent. Yeah. They don't have any, they don't have any codes. Uh, they shoot at us and without thinking twice about it and stuff. And I worked them for the next 10 years and became the FBI's leading expert in Jamaican organized crime, traveled to Jamaica, traveled to Canada, traveled to the UK, um, which is all the places where the Jamaicans sure. are, have a big presence. And uh, and there were books written about me and my partner, who was another NYPD detective, first grader. Um, and uh, yeah, for many years, and, and even now, I don't travel and couldn't probably travel safely to Jamaica um, because of the books that have been written and TV shows that have been made about the Jamaican mafia and those of us who had a prominent role in the 80s and 90s in dismantling a lot of the big posses that were operating between Jamaica and New York City and Miami. Would you? So that's what my, my follow up was going to be. They don't sound like the cartels you watch in like shows like Narcos, where there's just gunfights. It feels like every couple of days, every couple of hours almost. 
Yeah, unfortunately, like Narcos actually paints a bit of a, I mean, the, the gunfights are down there, but when, you know, when, when I moved over to the drug side of the house from the organized crime squad, um, there were, there was like a pecking order of crime. Like so you had the, the Asian, the Asian uh, triads, um, you had the Colombian cartels, and then you had like my squad, which was like the Jamaicans and the, and the Dominicans yeah. and the, the rougher ones. Those guys never shot at each other. The Colombians were all business. The, the Asians were even bigger business. I mean, we would get, I mean, I remember the Asian squad one time had a, like a tractor trailer full of heroin. There wasn't even a gun around. They don't, they were much more businesslike. Um, my Jamaicans were much more violent, much more ready to shoot you and stuff. Uh, you know, regardless of what Narcos portrays, or yeah. what yeah, Ozark, yeah. you know, what Ozark portrays, the Jamaicans to me were the most violent uh, and most ready to do violence uh, against law enforcement and against each other. Uh, I mean, my first RICO case, I built a RICO case. We charged 54 members of a gang uh, in three different states. And uh, we had over 100 RICO charges. And I think we had over 30 homicides included in, in that wow. in that case, uh, mostly from New York City, Albany, Springfield, Massachusetts, and Dallas, Texas. Um, and, and uh, you know, we, we routinely did homicide investigations in those cases and those RICO cases and, and stuff. And, uh, you know, if I was, if I, if I, was going to think that anybody would come after me at all, it would be from the Jamaican side of the house. Um, because yeah. I, when I finished working Jamaicans, I transitioned into working underwater and I, I, I kind of built the and established the FBI's underwater forensic team. Um, and there it was more of a just kind of recovering guns and bodies and things like that. And everybody else is what we call collateral duty. And so uh, an email came around the office for the dive team, which I didn't even know existed, is the only really officially sanctioned dive team in the FBI at the time. And, and it was in New York because New York was the biggest office in the FBI, still is. It has the manpower that can support a team like that. If you're in a smaller office, you can't support a team because there's not enough people. Right. And, you know, diving is one of those perishable skills, we call. So unless you're always doing it, you get rusty and you get hurt because yeah. you're not as good as you should be. So anyway, so in 1995, um, this small six-man dive team, which was kind of housed in our special operations branch and kind of secretive, was getting so busy they needed to kind of double the size of the team. They were bringing on six new divers, collateral duty divers, and they were going to open it up for the first time outside of the special operations branch. And so as a criminal agent, I was in the criminal branch uh, working investigations. I, I raised my hand and I made the team in 95. There were tryouts and interviews and things. And so I made the team in 1995. Um you know, I wasn't on the team a year and we have the TWA flight 800 crash off of Long Island, which is a 747 leaving Kennedy Airport on July 17th, 1996 and moved to Paris and crashes 11 miles off the coast of Long Island. Um, it was July 17th was a Wednesday. It was two days before the opening ceremonies of the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. Right. So everybody thought this could be terrorism. A 747 just doesn't usually blow up midair, yeah. you know, and come crashing down. Um, and, and thankfully so, because that was a, one of the, it was the biggest commercial airline in the flying at the time. Now you have the A380 and others. Um, but uh, so everybody thought, oh my God, this could be terrorist. This could be a diversion. Maybe they, they want our attention up here and then they're going to hit the, the Olympics. So a, a heavy contingent of people of FBI agents went out and sort of helping investigate that case with the NTSB, with Suffolk County PD, with a lot of others also involved. And so I was part of the dive team. So we started diving on this this crash, this large aircraft that had 230 people on board and all perished. And so it was a lot of bodies in the water, sure. um, a lot of things to pull up. And it, we took four months of diving every day. It was a lot of diving. It was kind of a baptism by fire yeah. type of thing for me on the dive team. Um, and, and I had to get permission from my regular um, supervisor doing the drug cartel 
stuff. Um, but because this was such an, a nationally uh, seen crime and possibly related to terrorism that, you know, my boss gave me the okay, you know, as long as you, you'd be out there as long as they need you. And so it was the next four months uh, diving every day out there, the weather permitting. Uh, as we got into the fall, weather got worse and dive yeah. days got canceled because it just got too dangerous to be out there on small boats diving. Um, and, but we recovered over 90% of that aircraft and we did recover all 230 souls that perished. Um, yeah. Or, yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that was my, you know, right from there, my, my career took a, a, a real hard turn into forensics and into underwater diet, underwater recovery and, and things like that. And um, I started getting burned out by the late nineties on, on murder and drugs and, 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 and that stuff. And, uh, and an opportunity came up in the late 1990s where the FBI laboratory was looking at the New York dive program because their, their evidence response team, every office at that point, every one of the 56 field offices domestically of the FBI had an evidence response team. Yeah. I always say CSI, just to remind people that's our CSI program. Yeah. Um, it's just called the RT. And so it was covered by the evidence response team unit at the forensic science section of the FBI laboratory. So it was a very, scientifically based uh, backed uh, program and had a lot of validity to it. And so they saw us as kind of, you know, crime scene underwater. And so they wanted to take the program over uh, and they wanted to put, put, appoint somebody full time in charge of the diving. Now, up until then, it was in the special operations branch uh, of the New York office. And the leader of the team, Richie, was a very, very highly skilled, what we call technically trained agent, which was which means he was the kind of guy that would go above the Ravenite social club and wire it with microphones and cameras so they can catch John Gotti talking to Sammy <laughs> sure. the Bull, right? His team is the team that does that stuff and did that. And so, so and, and Richie was really good at it. But also a part-time thing he had was he was running the dive team. So the, when the lab came up and said, look, we want somebody full-time on this, Richie didn't want that. They offered it to him because he was the team yeah. leader. Um and at that point, you know, he was he was well off in his career and he didn't want to leave the uh, technically trained agent program. And so I was in the right place at the right time. I was ready to transition away from the drug wars. And yeah. um, and I was burned out, quite frankly. And so I stepped in as the first full time diver in FBI history um, because Richie turned it down. Of course, I had to turn to, you know, people over justice Department, the prosecutors. OK, what do we need? to give you as far as paperwork and a trail and a chain of custody so that not only can this evidence be presented to the lab and they can exploit it and, and get as much value from it evidentiary wise as they can in the lab, but we also want to maintain its integrity so that you can use it in a court of law. And ultimately it won't get suppressed because we handled it improperly. So I had the legal and I'm, a, I'm an attorney also. So yes. I, I speak that language. And so we built into our protocols both the scientific way of handling this stuff and the documentary stuff that is going to hold up in a court of law. So those were our two clients, by basically the lab examiners and the prosecutors. And we, 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 we built our protocols around knowing that we needed to do both those things for the integrity of the science and the integrity of the law we had to both, we had to take into play. And so we built a program and, and it's a program I'm very proud of, um, trying to do a TV show on these guys now. Yeah. They just they just found a Bronco, a Ford Bronco, 40 years missing a guy and it was covered in mud. It was at the below the bottom of a lake and they found it. Wow. And and the guy was still the skeleton was still in the driver's seat after 40 years and they recovered the whole thing. Um and it, it's just a fascinating case and I really want to 
highlighted on a TV show. And we we had a Zoom call with FBI headquarters yesterday, and hopefully they're going to be supportive of of this sure. program. And we're gonna we're gonna build a program about the good work, the incredible work that's done by um, the FBI divers. I want to bring it to the public for the first time. Um, but yeah, so I spent 19 years part time and full time in the FBI dive program. You know, and that means we went to. 40 miles north of Anchorage, Alaska, and, and, and drilled through four feet of ice to recover yep. the, the dismembered remains of a 19-year-old victim of a serial killer. He killed her, raped her, killed her, cut her up into five pieces and, and threw her under a frozen lake. And we went up and got her. We went to 150 miles off the coast of Honduras in the middle of the ocean uh, where two cocaine submarines had sunk. And we recovered, you know, $650 million off one and $750 million worth of cocaine off the other wow. at the bottom of the at the bottom of the ocean. Um, it was going 40 miles south of Baghdad in August of 2006 to look for a weapon that five U.S. soldiers used to rape and kill a 14-year-old Iraqi girl and kill her mother, father, and five-year-old sister. Um, uh, there are horrific cases, uh, yeah. lots of child recoveries for you know children killed by predators, um, guns, knives, everything you can think of, every kind of case you yeah. can think of, uh, and every place around the globe uh, you can think of. We, we went and we dove. Do you think now, not to pivot, I want to either mm -hmm. ask you to like, you can answer this however you'd like the, what was the most scared you've ever been or the worst, like the case that like shocked you the most or the most shocking case you've ever had. However, the most scared you're ever in either in the field or yeah, yeah. going after something or the most shocking case. I, you've ever I had. think the, the most, the, 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 the most scared I've been, and, and this sounds weird to say, but the scaredest I've been was not somebody pointing a gun at me thinking they were going to shoot me, although that has happened. Yeah. And it's scary. But the thing, the thing, two, two of these incidents stay with me and sure. they were both incidents where I was going to shoot somebody. And I came, I, I can't even show you how close I came with my fingers because they would have to be pressed together. Yeah. It's that, that close. Um, one was a kidnapping in, in, in New York City, I was working on the squad with Jamaicans. The other half of my squad worked the Chinese gangs, the, uh, the Green Dragons. And um, and they were kidnapping each other all the time, and they were into yeah. trafficking type things. And we were doing a kidnapping case, and it was Chinatown in New York City in, in the middle of summer, in the middle of the day. It was madness. People running, going. It was lunch hour. Yeah. Everybody's doing everything. And that's where the drop was going to be. That's where the money exchange was going to be. So we had the whole, it was, I remember it was like a little bit of a traffic circle type thing. I can't remember the street. And we had the whole thing saturated with agents. We were all everywhere. And, and we were, we, our surveillance teams were up in the buildings and they spotted these guys as these guys came. They, they came like three hours early to, to set up. They sure. they'd get there earlier. Than we were. We yeah. were there six hours early. We were there for six <laughs> yeah. hours. They thought they got there three hours. They, were out, they thought they, they were said, outsmarting you. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of knew where each of them set up and was. So we were each we were kind of in these what we call Trojan horses, these vans that you can't see in. And we were all yeah. and we're sweating and sweating and sweating. And so we each had a person that and we're all we all have earpieces. So we hear where our guys are. My guy was in it. I remember he was in a baseball jacket which in the middle of July in, in New York City is under Very suspicious, very suspicious, yeah, suspicious right? to be doing that. So, and he's got his hands, I remember, on like this, this. Uh, if you know New York City subways, they have, they have like these spiked, almost wrought iron like things yeah. at the top and the stairs go underneath. And he's leaning against it and he's got his arms up. And so he was my guy. I don't, I, I wasn't focused on anything else. Me and my partner were going after him. And um, 
I, I we we jump out. It's total pandemonium. I'm laser focused on this guy. Everything else goes blurry except him and my yeah. vision. I've got my what we used at the time was a Remington 870 12 gauge shotgun. I I, I had. Uh, that's very powerful had, for like a. That's a very powerful <laughs> weapon for. Yeah, that was our long gun at the time, and um, and I remember racking it. It had a. I think I had slug, and slug was the first shot, and then four more. Uh, double R buck, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what I was loaded with. Uh, and and I I was walking at him. I raised the gun. Now there's a shotgun. Is a big gun. Yeah. And uh, and this kid is a, a very slight built, you know, uh, Chinese gang member. And I know if I hit him in the, in the chest with a slug, I'm going to leave a hole this big. Yeah, it's going to rip and, him uh, apart. Yeah. You're gonna leave yeah. Him so I'm I'm walking at him. I'm no more than I don't know. I'm 15 feet now. I'm 10 feet, eight feet. I'm walking towards him, yelling commands at him to put his hands up. Don't move. Now they're screaming everywhere. Yeah. And and I'm level at him. And he takes his hands off. He puts them into the pockets of his jacket. Yeah. He shouldn't even have a jacket on in this weather. He should be in one of those little white, you know, like white beaters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and so I take another step and I I swear when he jammed his hands in his pockets, it looked like he was either going to turn to his left or take a step towards me. And I knew I was going to have to shoot him at that yeah. point. And I remember putting pressure on the trigger. I mean, everything is laser focused. Now your heightened senses, um, everything else is tuned out. It's just me and him are the only two on the world. He's very in focus. Everything else is very out of focus. I'm starting to put pressure on the trigger. And as I'm doing that, he kind of goes out of focus to me and he just disappears in a swipe. And what it was, was another agent, a skip had come from my left. He had thrown his guy on the ground, his partner had arrested him and he saw my guy and he just kind of tackled him. And I then, you know, put the, the gun up and we, we got him and stuff. Um, and I, and I talked to skip later. He was on my squad. He's like, no, no, I knew you weren't going to shoot him. Yeah. Evidently, uh, you know, it's a low budget operation. <laughs> Was a time. There was a timer on it. Yeah, I guess evidently there's a timer. You get 40 minutes. So oh, okay, well, well, I'll finish now. No, okay. So you were you yeah. were at where? Uh, yeah. So we we lost you on the Zoom call, but we had uh, you were saying that your uh, partner said you weren't going to shoot him. Right. Yeah. He saw he saw that the, the guy he didn't see a weapon, so he tackled him. And ultimately, the kid didn't have a weapon. He you know, yeah. and so I'm glad I didn't shoot him because it probably would it would have been a good shoot. Um, but it certainly felt to me like he was about to draw a weapon or he was going to shoot me through his jacket. Yeah. Because I, you know, I might not have never have saw the weapon because with those jackets, you could just kind of use your hands and you could shoot right through the jacket. Um, and, and it wouldn't affect the flight of the bullet, certainly. Um, and so he could have <laughs> killed me, you know, without me ever seeing the weapon. Anyway, so that was my first time that I was really close to kind of pulling the trigger. The other one was similar incident. Well, similar in my respect in that. I, I we, we kicked the door, door in for this uh, drug dealer guy um, and he's running down this long hallway in this tenement building and there's doors on both sides and I'm telling him to stop. We go through the living room where we the door in is into the living room, kick the door in the living room. He gets up and he runs. He's running down the hallway, he gets pretty far. Now I'm clearing each door, me and my partner. Sure. And she's she's just behind me and I'm we're clearing each door and then, and then he get he's still in the way. And he's running towards the back room. And I see light in the back room because I realize there's probably a window in that back room. Except he stops. Back room left is where I saw the light coming from. He stops and he reaches in. I thought he was going to go into this room. Instead, he just reaches in. Now, he's reaching in. And as he's pulling his hands out, I can kind of see 
a shadow. He's got something. Yeah. I'm thinking he's probably grabbed the rifle or shotgun. He's about to, and he's, as he's coming back out, is this is, and this is like less than seconds. This is all happening. But when you're in that situation, time slows down. Right. Everything kind of slows, especially when you're thinking back about it. it probably, obviously, it didn't slow down for you, but your memory of it slows down. So I, I had my gun trained on him. And as he's coming out, he's, he's coming out and he's turning towards me. And he comes all the way out. And again, I'm pressing. I have pressure on my finger against the trigger. Um, and he comes out and he's got a kid in his hand like that. Oh, he's wow. His kid. Like a two-year-old kid in his hand, and he just backs away from me down the hallway. Then he just kind of throws the kid down and goes into that room on the left. Oh, he just tried to shield you. He tried to shield. He, he, yeah. he was a child as a shield, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and then um, so we have to slow down and stop and take care of the kid and of still course. hold him because he still could get a gun in that back room. But as I'm looking, I could see him going out the window, and there's a fire escape there. And so my partner, she takes the kid, turns around, hands it to another agent that was behind her, right. and we go into that bedroom. He's now crawling out onto the fire escape. I remember she grabbed one leg. I grabbed the other. We're on the second floor. He could get right down, but we had a team watching the front front. So yeah. one of my partners was actually on the sidewalk in front. He raises his shotgun up to the guy telling him to don't move. I look down, I see his shotgun pointed basically at me because I've got the guy around the feet. I kind of realized he didn't have a, a gun on him because he was just in boxer shorts. Yeah, yeah. It was the middle of, it was, well, it's not the middle of the night. It was early morning, you know, six o'clock. Sure. He's sleeping on the couch in the bedroom and he gets up and takes off. And and so I got one of his legs, my partner got the other, and my partner, the other, one of our other squad mates has the, I told him to lower the gun because, you know, because <laughs> yeah. he's going to shoot me rather than the guy. But um, yeah, that was the other one where I don't know how close, I don't know how many fractions of a second Sure. Until I would have fired that shot just before he pulled that kid out of the room as a shield. Um, but that's another one that always kind of, if I think about it too much, I get anxious about it. And so right. it, it's one of those things. So I've had guns pointed at me. I've had a, a trigger pulled uh, at me uh, that went, the gun didn't go off. Uh, it jammed. Um, but but those two situations are the situations that always, and not that they frighten me. I mean, I think either one, obviously, if I would have pulled the trigger in either of those situations, my life would have changed. Right. I think I think I could have been judged as a wrongful shoot. You shot an unarmed person in either in, in both respects. The second uh, one seems a little almost worse. The, the second there, one yeah, could yeah. could have been worse. Yeah. I mean, I, I I don't want to think about the fact that I, no. I might have shot that kid. I don't think so. Um because I think I would, and I think I did. I was waiting to see a weapon in that situation. Now the problem is, if you wait till you see the weapon, that means the weapon yeah. could go off, and and I might have been killed. And that's the paradox. That's the you know that that police often face is like you know you want the police to see a weapon before they fire, but the, by the time they see a weapon, it could be too late. Yeah, you know it's the I mean? danger. It's the you know, it's the battle that they have. Right. I mean, that kid in the in the in Chinatown, he could have easily shot me. Now I had a vest on, of course, but he could have hit me in the head, could have shot me in the face by you know his dumb luck. Um, but he certainly could have shot me with a gun through the jet through the pockets of that jacket without me, me ever seeing the gun. Now I, it didn't happen, and and you know, you, you want to hope that, we knew these guys weren't that tight. They weren't, you know, yeah. they 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 gave up because we arrested them before and stuff and stuff. And they, they just weren't the type to shoot at cops. But but boy, both of those times I just remember I don't know how much more pressure would have taken on yeah. that trigger to to for for the gun to go off. And you know, you know, I, I always remember like our firearms instructors, it's like, you know. It's not, you know, you never pull the trigger, right? Because if you pull the trigger, you're pulling the gun, you're off aim, right? right? It's always like 
it's always they always I remember very early on in my firearm training the, the thing was like you want it you almost want the gun going off to be a surprise it's yeah. all about just you're holding steady and you're just slowly slowly applying more and more and more and more pressure because if you think about pulling you're gonna you're gonna you're anticipate you're gonna, you're gonna yeah, jump up yeah jerk it. yeah you know so in both of those cases I I, I remembered afterward thinking like yeah, they always told me don't make it when the gun goes off, it should be a surprise because it's just about increasing the pressure. And then you don't know when the pressure is going to be enough for that right. gun to go off. That's why it's a surprise. And, you know, I don't know how much closer or how much more pressure in either of those situations would have taken to, to, to fire that weapon. I'm glad I didn't reach that point in both those cases. Um, uh, but, but, but those are the two I remember the most. I, I do look, I remember the guy coming out of the closet and, and shoving a gun on my face and pulling the trigger and, and it not going off. But um, but I for some reason I never that's almost like that's that's not me. Like I I the reason the, the two that I described affect me the most is like I couldn't do anything about the guy coming at me. Yeah. You always anticipate surprises and you try to react or whatever. So I never shot anybody. I yeah. never shot at anybody. Um, but though, but I came close enough to know. Boy, I don't ever want to have that feeling, and that—that's like you know. Now, look, I would have shot somebody if it was warranted and if it was justified. I just never found myself, you know, in that situation. But I came close a couple of times, yeah. and and those two times that I described weren't like close times where it was justified. I had close times where it would have been justified if I had pulled the trigger. But those two times, I think, where I remember most because each time I was under an, a different impression. I was wrong. Like I thought he was reaching for a rifle and he pulled yeah. the kid out. I thought that kid thrust his hand in his pockets because he had a gun in. I was wrong um, and and stuff. And so those both those things were like, had I pulled the trigger on those, I might have. I'm not saying I would have regretted it, but sure. I would have been I would have been acting on an incorrect assumption on my part. I think it would have just been like an address like the I don't know, the come down from that probably would have been pretty heavy. Like you're in the obviously in the moment, the adrenaline's high. But like the come down from like, oh, well, I can't believe I just killed somebody on the street right. for no reason almost. Yeah. No. And, and and that's why I look at sometimes I look at these situations where, you know, a cop will kill somebody or something. And, and it will be one of those situations where it's justified, but it wasn't what he thought. And right. like everybody goes, oh, the cop's fine. It's fine. It's a good shoot. Don't worry about it. I'm like, yeah, I know it may be justified by policy or by the law. Sure. But that guy's going to live with that. You know yeah. what I mean? And I would have lived with these things. I mean, I still live with them in a way and I didn't, yeah. neither of those guys got hurt. No. Um, and so I still live with it a little bit in my own head and stuff. And so I can imagine had I pulled the trigger, even if I was ultimately, you know, cleared that the shooting was within policy or whatever, I don't know, but, but they, you still live with it, you know, and I know, you know, so I sympathize with cops like that. And I mean, yeah. people try to too easily pass it off. I mean, we don't. It's a heavy thing. It's a heavy thing to like to take someone's life and especially these are strange. I mean, to you, they're strangers. Like, yeah, they're, these yeah. are you. You're all strangers, and it's, I think yeah. it's a heavy, very heavy burden afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my last question, not to keep you too long. Um, this we the Idaho murders were in the news mm -hmm. for the probably the biggest murder case this to start the year. Of course, it happened in December, or I believe November. November. Um, yeah, November, and then obviously it grew over the last few weeks. We had talked on a uh, Twitter Spaces, and I'd already asked you this, but I want the people here to know. Um, there was things, I think there was all this stuff where he's a criminal, uh, Brian Koberger is the main suspect. Um, they talked about how he was, uh, in a criminal investigation that like he was in criminal science. I believe his major was, he yeah. was a teacher. He knew these, yeah. Criminology. Mm -hmm. He knew these kids through whichever channel he apparently, I think came out yesterday that he had visited restaurants that they worked at or something like that. Yeah. Um, there was, I asked you the question, do these, did you work with criminals? where they believed that they might be outsmarting 
even themselves with these technologies because he turned his phone off at like 4.30 in the morning and his phone was being tracked and pinged. And then it turns back on at 5.15 and that's when they have somebody leaving and now him being the suspect, somebody leaving this apartment complex. Do you, if you do run into a lot of cases where criminals are trying to be smart or they think they're being smart, but in reality, they're almost incriminating themselves with these, with the cell phone issue. I believe it's the most incriminating evidence here. Yeah, of course. I think, and, and, and mostly this guy, I, I don't know if he was a budding uh, career criminal or not. He certainly wasn't off to a good start, obviously, no, but no. Um, yeah, these are what we call, well, you know, what we term a very general term is called for forensic countermeasures. And these are something as simple as wearing gloves to not leave fingerprints or DNA behind is a forensic countermeasure because they know, right? right? I know forensically I could touch something and leave my DNA. I could touch something, leave a fingerprint. That's forensics. So my forensic countermeasure to that is wear a glove. Right. Turning off my phone. I know from watching TV, if I'm <laughs> Joe, Joe Q public, yeah. um, I know that they can get my phone record. So, you know, when I turn it off, I'm going to, when I go to the crime scene, I'm going to turn my phone off just before and I'll turn it on when I leave. So they'll never be able to put my phone in that area. Yeah. That's a, that's a kind of forensic countermeasure because they're going to do forensic analysis of your phone records and so forensic countermeasure. So there are a whole broad category of forensic countermeasures. Some of them are very good. Some of them are very crude. Wearing yes. gloves is a crude method. It's crude, but effective in, in some respects. Um, now, we, we know from the unsealing of the, uh, of the search warrants that were done on his apartment in Washington state that yes. was unsealed this week, that they, they pulled a black nitrite glove. Nitrite is kind of like a surgical glove. Um, now some people do it when they're painting, some people wear it, you know, when they're putting nail polish on whatever, yeah. but, but if, if they have a nitrite glove at the crime scene and one that matches the black glove at the thing, you know, obviously it's that, just gathering, that's, it's gathering, that's a home yeah. run. Right. So so you use it as a forensic countermeasure, but then you carry it back to your house. You know, what yeah. I mean, that, that doesn't it doesn't make sense. You no. know, like most criminals know to throw it away before you get back to your house. Um, and, and so, yeah, so if you can you can see some level of a crude understanding of forensic countermeasures, but not to the point where it was going to do them any good. Um, and so. Yeah, like like they'll do a forensic, for example, they could do a forensic analysis of his phone records for going back 12 months, say, for example. Yeah. And they can do a really detailed analysis and show you blah, 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 all the pinging of his phone, all of it. Yeah, and all of our phones ping all the time, right? And like my phone is rarely off. I When I, I have this little holder, it sits by my bedside and it charges all night, right? It's on. Yeah. Um, I, my I phone's never my phone hasn't been off and i think it, it'd be a long time it hasn't died right. and it hasn't most been of off us yet. are like that right <laughs> we have these little cradles that that, that are yeah. by our nightstand it's my it's my it's my alarm clock now i don't right. have a, a bedside alarm clock it's my phone and it sits in this cradle and so if you do a, a say they do an analysis say you go back six months and his phone is pinging 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 every day it's pinging somewhere like that. and never in six months is there a three or four hour block where it's not on yeah even when you shut it off a lot of times, like my wife and I will go to a spa, I'll shut it off, but it's right, like yeah. an hour. It's off for an hour. And it's in this, you know, it pinged in the spa when it was, and then it pings in the spa when I turn it back on in a lock on, whatever. So imagine if at trial you show this big chart with, with all these pings of his phone for the last six months, say a year, whatever. And there's no period where it's ever off for four hours, except one. Yeah. One period, it's off for four hours right around the crime. Well, that's not doing you much good. In fact, it's probably hurting you because the jury's going to say, there's a guy like the rest of us whose phone is almost on 24-7. And, and there's one four-hour block, you know, right around the murders where it's not on. And, and so, like, that's a, 
that's kind of a crude understanding of a countermeasure, but it's yeah. really not because you, you just basically screwed yourself if, 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 if they find, I'm saying if they do that analysis and it turns out that way, right? That's the way it's going to look. Did you notice with criminals who were a little bit more hardened or if you were chasing somebody who you had suspected of committing multiple crimes where they get cleaner as they go on, where they get better because they can't be, I mean, obviously you can't be really good at this. Like I watched the show uh, Dahmer on Netflix. I know it's very popular Uh uh, where he got better at his crime. Right. Absolutely. And and, and that's a serial killer. So the last serial killer case I worked was 2011. I retired in 2014. So in 2011, I worked the case. uh, Israel Keys was the serial killer. Israel Keys um, was a serial killer living in Alaska the documentary they did on oxygen was called method of a serial killer. You can actually find it on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I'm in it. And, and so my job, I got a call on a Friday night in, in LA and it was Quantico it was my, my boss at the lab. And he said, look, we need your team to fly up to Alaska. We think we have the dismembered remains of a 19 year old girl beneath a frozen lake in North of Anchorage. So we flew up there on Sunday, did the dive on Monday. We found all five pieces of her. Mm. Um, and, you know, they were interviewing and interrogating Israel Keys. He admitted to this murder, told us how he did it. Um, and he admitted to 11 other murders, or 10 other murders, 11 total, including Bill and Elaine Courier up in uh, Vermont, upstate New York, Vermont area. And, and uh, I, I actually flew up and 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 took my old dive team from New York up there, and we found the gun that he used in that murder. Um but about 11 months later, after he had given us 11, and he's probably good for two dozen, maybe 30 or sure. more homicides, he hung himself in jail. So because he's deceased, the FBI had released all his interrogation tapes. So you can go on YouTube and you can see him talking in his own words in the interrogation room. Go on YouTube and search Israel Keys interrogation. And you can see him. And, and he's playing cat and mouse with the investigators. They play this game because we didn't have that much on him. and We needed to kind of keep him happy to keep talking. Right. Um, but he describes his evolution as a killer his first big crime these there's this bunch of teenagers was kind of tubing down this river in oregon or some washington somewhere up there and um they're all they take a break for lunch or whatever and they're all hanging out and on the side of the river and they're all getting ready to go back in and in the river and, and continue down the river yeah. and one of the one of the girls stays behind to use the bathroom and there's like this little outhouse bathroom off this little uh section it's like a campground i guess yeah yeah, tiny little thing, but nobody sure. else there. And her friends all start to leave. She goes up to this bathroom. He's laying in wait. He t- he attacks her in there, rapes her. Um, she does a smart thing for a victim. She starts talking to him. You're a good looking guy. Why do you do this? You sure. don't have to do this. Take it goes, whatever. And she got in his head and he let her live and he took off. And then he describes how nervous he was that he left her witness. And he, he had nightmares of the cops knocking on his door right. and couldn't sleep and stuff. And he realized at that point that he did, he, he wasn't ever going to leave another living witness to his crimes. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's what you're talking about. Learning. They yeah. learn, they get better. He was maturing. I hate to say it. It's, it's yeah. I hate maturing. to say, I hate to say get better. I'm just saying clean. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Tighter. Me too. I hate yeah. to say like, it's the maturation. And I think yeah. I used that term. In, in the special, it's a maturation of a serial killer. He's learning as he goes along. He's getting better. Um, I don't know if Brian Kohl- Kohlberger would have done that if he would right. have gotten away with this one. He did a very, he did a series of stupid things. And, and to me, he wasn't going to be a serial killer. No, it just seemed um, like he but, acted on impulse, really. It just yeah, like too, very too impulsive. Like, like, right. like Keys, this was his first attack. He, he chose a very isolated area. He chose one victim who had nobody else around, right. you know, he was smarter about it. 
You know, you don't go into a house in a populated area and attack four people at one time. No. You know what I mean? That's not what you do. And so I, I don't, I doubt, I don't know. And, and it's not my area of expertise. It's hard to so. say. It's hard to say. I'm not a profiler. I'm not a forensic psychologist. I would leave that to the experts. Um, and so I won't posit an opinion on that. Just, it's just my very, you know, uh, novice opinion. Um, but there, there is cases, like you say, with Dahmer in that Netflix special. And if you watch Method of a Circular, where they do learn. And that's why the most successful ones get away with it. If you don't learn from it, you know, you're not going to yeah. get better and you're going to get caught. Now, he's realized he made a big mistake because he used to say, he used to try to stay random to his victim and random to the location. So, um, for example, Bill and Elaine Courier, who he had killed the year before, he was living in Alaska. He gets a, a call from a buddy because he was a construction. He was in the army and all these yeah. guys went into construction after. But he says, hey, I got this job. It's about three weeks. Can you come out framing houses or whatever? I'm building four houses or whatever. Yeah. So it's in Vermont or upstate New York. So Keyes realizes this is a good opportunity for him to do his next kill. So what does he do? He flies from Anchorage to Chicago, rents a car, drives from Chicago to upstate New York to do this job, pays everything cash there. Yeah. So there's nobody going to even know he's there, really. And and the paper trail ends in Chicago, right? And so he drives that car, and he's there for a couple of weeks. I don't know how long he's there, but he picks out um, he picks out the couriers. He he does an analysis. See, you can see this again on his yeah. interrogation tapes on YouTube. He looked for a house that had two things, or lacked two things, really: no kids' stuff, no play gym, no kids' toys in the yard. So he, he wants no kids. He doesn't want to deal with kids and no dogs. So he looked for a chain or dogs, toys in the yard and stuff. So so he was consciously learning. And he did, so he was surveying this house. So he saw this elderly couple, elderly, I want to say they were probably in their late 50s, maybe early 60s. Um, it's, going el it's, elderly, the, it's elderly to me, but if I said that, my parents would get on it. If I sell that, me too, parents, I'm going to be 60 <laughs> on my next birthday. So I have to be careful what I say. Um, and that's why I always catch myself. Uh, and so he sees them going out for their evening walks after dinner and he realizes they might be a good target. And so he breaks into their house um, and he kills them. But he takes Bill's gun out of the house, gets them to an abandoned farmhouse. That's where he rapes uh, and, and kills the wife and then and kills the husband using the husband's gun and then throws the gun in a reservoir. We ultimately dove that reservoir and found the gun. He told us where it was. Yeah. Um, and And so... He was random to the victims. So like if you did a deep dive on Bill and Elaine Courier's life, you'd never find him. Yeah, he doesn't he wasn't, link up. Yeah, he he doesn't. wasn't a former relative, a former business partner, a former uh, romantic interest, you know, nothing, nothing. You, if you could do a deep dive on, you could do a deep dive on that town. Never find and him. And see every uh, sexual predator, never find him. So those two things he knew. If I stay random to my victim and random to the location, I'm going to stand a better chance. And he, he actually voiced that. So he knew, yeah. you know, and, and, and so um, he also knew he did his last killing in Anchorage where he lived. And that was a mistake. Yeah. And, and I don't know why he did that. There's different theories on why he was living with a woman who was a nurse anesthetist, I think, or a nurse practitioner. I educated a woman with a good job. Sure. Um, his business wasn't doing that well. I think he may have felt emasculated that she was kind of the breadwinner. In the he did have custody of his 11 year old daughter. Um, so he was a dad. Yeah. Um, the, the woman he was living with was not the biological mom, of the kid. Um, and, and so like, you know, why he had that impulse, because in the past, he was able to governor's impulses and use opportunities 
to commit crimes where he knew his chances of getting caught were low. Yeah. Either by picking the location where he was random to, um, or he would pick a victim. We think he probably had a couple of murders of prostitutes, you know, what we call high risk uh, victims. Um, and, and so I think some of his murders were that. And, and so, so he consciously went about choosing his, his, his killing grounds and his victims, um, you know, with the thought in mind of lowering his chances of getting caught. And, and so successful killers will do that. Um, yeah. Kohlberger didn't do that. No, he did that. not do that. Um, and so, and, you know, so you don't, you know, so, so yes, there is a learning process that happens. And if you're not caught right away, you get better. You know, you theoretically would get better at each time. Yeah. If you're, so, especially if you're wired a certain way to be crazy. Well, yeah, and Key just, says that Key said he describes an incident when he was a kid, 15, maybe 14, 15, 16 year old, where he took a friend into the woods. Yeah. He said, hey, come, come here. I want to watch you. This is a cool thing. You know, so so he goes out there and this is, you know, I'm sorry, this is graphic. And you sure, know, of you course. Warn people. But he ties it. Uh, the, the podcast has an explicit tag. I, I swear. Okay. Enough, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so he ties a cat to a tree yeah. with a long rope or chain and he sets it on fire. Oh, wow. And and the cat runs around and the chain gets wrapped around. It gets closer and closer to the tree and the cat burns to death or whatever. Easy. And and Keyes is watching this in fascination, probably getting a sexual thrill out of it, I think. Of course. Because um, it's psychosexual thing. It drove him. And his friend is is throwing up. His friend is horrified at this and throwing up. And Keyes tells us, like, something switched in his head at that point. Something told him, like, I, I love watching this. I This is yeah. cool. I just got a thrill watching this. And my friend is, you know, well, what's wrong with him? And then he said, well, maybe it's wrong with me. And, and I hope he doesn't tell me. So, so he realized at that point that he had to keep this part of his life private. He couldn't share it with other people. But right. before that, he didn't know. He thought everybody liked this kind of stuff. You know, <laughs> he was a kid. But he learned that this is not what society condones, but this is what drives me. So I have to keep this part of my life separate. And yeah. so he created this facade with having a kid, living with this woman, being a dad. That was all a facade. It's not a second life. It's not a double life. That's not even part of his life. That's just a facade that he knew. And, and I, again, I'm not a profile, no. I'm not a yeah. psychologist, but I, I'm telling you what I've learned in talking about this case to my friends who are profilers and forensic psychologists is that he's, they establish a facade life that's going to allow them to live their true life. Yes. And their true life is this evil that they do. And, and look, I'm not, I don't even know what side of the fence I come out, whether like they're born evil or this develops nature or nurture or whether this was going to happen no matter what, or whether it was an incident from their childhood that kind of triggered. I don't know. That, that's beyond me. Yeah. I, I, I don't just trying, pretend, you know, I don't pretend to be a smart enough guy to figure yeah. it out. Yeah. My, and my <laughs> job was never to figure my job was always to catch them. Yeah. You know, and of course they say like, I, I would consult people that could figure them out yeah. to help me catch them. It wasn't really their jobs. It was my job. Now, look, I, I'm, partly responsible for overblowing the role of profilers in our society. Cause I worked on the, since I've been tired, I wrote on the show criminal minds. I'm a, I was a writer on the show criminal minds. Yeah. I was a consultant on the show criminal minds. Criminal minds makes profiles look like they do a lot more than they, they do. actually do. Right. Do. So, and I know that, and you know, but it, but it was a good job and makes for good TV. I mean, it's makes for good TV. It was on for 15 years. It's on again now on Paramount plus the new version yeah. and, and stuff. And I loved working on it and it made me a lot of friends and I, I wrote an episode of it before it went off the air on CBS and it got me into the writing world and stuff. But, but, you know, I, and I think everybody knows that like CSI, yeah. it, it, it overblows the, the role of the, of the technicians that come out for the lab and do that stuff. And that's, it, you got to do that. It's entertaining. It's great. I mean, that's why like the top shows on TV, I think are like CSI fire, like fire department shows, police yeah, yeah. shows, yes, SVU. And in almost every one of those shows, 
you have to kind of, you have to put like the role of four or five people into one person and make right. it the hero because you just don't have that much time in TV in an hour of television to really show all the different people that do all the different roles. Um, but I've, I've, I've also worked with a lot of profilers and I still work every day with profilers now. Um, and so they tell me people like Keys, you know, they, they create that world for themselves so that they can be in society, you know, and have that facade and yeah. then then go out and, and, and live their real life, which is that, in that impulse to murder and things they like, like put like a mask on basically it's they a total mask yeah. right and so, i don't like when people call it like double lives because that that almost puts both of those lives on equal footing it's no, not they are not it's, no. it's the the facade life and the, their real life is the is the evil well i i mean i really appreciate your time uh today sure. uh you want to tell people where they can find you what you got yeah, going on um, now what you're working on BobbyJacone.com is my website. I, um, I try to update as much as possible. I just, like I said, I taped a, an episode of, of Dr. Phil yesterday yes. on the Alex Murdoch, uh, Murdoch trial um, that starts next week. And if you know that, oh, case, yes. Yes. a South Carolina attorney that shot is accused of shooting his wife. And I watched the, uh, there's a great YouTube channel. I mean, I, I, I've talked about it on this podcast called that chapter and it's this Irish guy and he did the whole Murdoch murders. He, yeah. I, I watched him on the, on the stair stepper i've been trying to get in better oh, shape okay. but i watched him <laughs> but i watched yeah him so that's yeah. A, so we did that on dr phil it'll, it'll air next wednesday uh the, the 25th of january um i'm also uh filming next sat next week a cnn uh, hln special on the idaho murders i don't know when that's going to air but i'm sure. filming it next uh but i'm on court tv all the time i'm on I was on Fox News three times last week, News Nation, uh, a lot of different, you know, channels uh, commenting on different crimes uh, and things like that. Um, I wrote and produced a Audible original series on Audible. If you're into listening to stuff, it's called After the Fall. It was about the FBI's investigation into the 9-11 attacks, um, which started years before 9-11, by the way. Nice. Um, and it's it's told through the story, through the voices of the men and women who work that case. So if you want to hear directly from them, not the innuendo, not the media spin, um, you'll hear directly from the agents and detectives that were signed to the squad that worked those cases. They went to, you know, they went to Pakistan, sure. they went to you know, Yemen, they went to everywhere in the in the globe to investigate that case. And you'll hear directly from them. You'll hear from the people that were down at Ground Zero 9-11. You'll hear from people like Jerry Cacuzzo, who I said earlier, uh, managed the FBI's uh, uh, operation at the New York City morgue. You'll hear from the people that responded to the Pentagon, well, the first ones on scene at the Pentagon and what they saw and did. Yeah. Um, and it's called After the Fall. It's on Audible. Um, and uh, it's, I think I mean, we have 17 episodes. Uh, they're all, they're, they're kind of standalone, some of the two or three parters. But if you want to just hear from, you know, the people who work with the victims, you can listen to that and and stuff. But it, it's, a, it's a series that I did in in relation, we released it just before the 20th anniversary because I was in New York City on 9-11 um, and, and had my own experiences. You'll hear me on that, tell yeah. my experience. I was on an airplane. I saw it happen out my airplane window. That's um, crazy. And, and so, yeah, so so that, um, uh, I'm on Twitter at Bobby Chacon FBI. Um, and, and I'm on, you know, a lot of podcasts. I'm constantly being asked to do my own podcast and I just steadfastly refuse. I, I'm a writer. Uh, I yeah. write for t TV and movies now. I'm writing my own movie uh, about that case that I told you where I took the dive team to Southern Iraq uh, in the case of five U.S. soldiers who raped and killed a 14-year-old Iraqi girl and murdered her family. Um, Brian De Palma actually did a movie about that case called Redacted, um, but that it stops at the event and the arrest. It, he didn't know that we went there and dove uh, and, and looked for the evidence. And so my the movie I'm writing is more about the 15 FBI divers who, at a moment's notice, got up, chartered a plane, and flew halfway around the world to a war zone in in 
justice for a little girl. Yeah. Um, even though the perpetrators were U.S. soldiers, uh, it didn't matter to us and it didn't matter who the victim was. Um, we were dedicated to justice. It's what we dedicated our lives to. And, and because the victims were a poor Iraqi family and the perpetrators of five U.S. soldiers didn't deter us from putting yeah. ourselves in in a very hostile environment yeah. uh, to, to look for evidence. And so, um, so I'm writing that as a feature film. Uh, I'm, I'm writing my own, you know, pilots for television series and things like that. And, um, so hopefully you, if you, if you don't hear me now, you'll hear me in the future. Of course. Yeah. And I'll link all this stuff below. Oh, oh, oh.